If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Franks had actually allowed their beards to grow a little bit. And in the half-light of dawn on the 3rd of June, the chaos was such that the only way to tell whether you were attacking one of your fellows or whether you were attacking a local Muslim was to look to see if they were bearded. And it turned out that some Franks actually got killed because they hadn't shaved. That was Thomas Bridge talking about the Crusades in a lecture from our 2013 History Weekend. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. It's available in all good news agents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Head to historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for our latest subscription deals. And we also have several digital editions, including for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. If you want details of those, visit historyextra.com forward slash digital. For this week's episode, we're going to be broadcasting a lecture from our History Weekend Festival that took place last October in the town of Malmesbury in Wiltshire. We're going to hear from Tom Asbridge, a historian from Queen Mary University of London. Tom's an expert on the Crusades, and the talk that he gave was entitled The Crusades in History. Before we begin, we have a short advertisement break. Munro Price, author of Napoleon, argues that despite popular opinion, the Battle of Waterloo was not the crucial point in Napoleon's fall from power. I think particularly in the English-speaking world, um, everybody, with the fall of Napoleon, everybody's focused on the Battle of Waterloo and 1815, with obviously the bicentenary um, next year. Um, And I feel that this completely ignores the fact that Waterloo wasn't in fact that important to the fall of Napoleon. When he fought Waterloo, he'd already had to abdicate once. He was returning to France as an adventurer and as an outlaw, in fact. And had he won the Battle of Waterloo, he would only have been defeated um, a few months down the line by a second Allied army. Um, Whereas, For me, it's the two years before that, 1813 and 1814, um, that is the key moment in his fall. Napoleon, The End of Glory, is now available online and in all major bookshops, priced at £20. And now let's head to Malmesbury Town Hall and join Tom Asbridge. So my theme today is uh, the study of the Crusades and and what I've called the Crusades in history. Uh, I want to begin with a few moments, a few images taken from these medieval events, moments from the past. The first tableau I want to examine uh, is a moment taken from June 1098. It's the moment at dawn on the 3rd of June in 1098 when the first crusaders broke into the city of Antioch in northern Syria. It's evoked in this image, which is a mid-13th century manuscript illumination, trying to depict a moment of actually of horror, a moment of extreme violence, where the Crusaders, after an eight-month siege, broke into this Muslim-held city. 
and butchered many of those within. I think it's striking the fact that this image doesn't really convey any sense of horror, especially if you look at the, the man who has his arms like this with a sword being pushed through his uh, chest. He almost looks as if he's about to say, Thank, you know, welcome to my city, thank you for coming. <laughs> Even the man who's about to be decapitated doesn't look that alarmed. Um, we also know from eyewitness testimony that this was not a good day to have a beard. One of the accounts tells us that the siege had been so long and drawn out, so grueling, that many of the crusaders, people that they would have thought of themselves as the Franks, had actually allowed their beards to grow a little bit, their stubble to grow. And in the half-light of dawn on the 3rd of June, the chaos was such that the only way to tell whether you were attacking one of your fellows or whether you were attacking a local Muslim was to look to see if they were bearded. And it turned out that some Franks actually got killed because they hadn't shaved. Not a good day to be badly presented for your crusader siege. If we were to go forward a little less than a century, then we could stop at another moment in crusading history, famous and renowned. This is a 19th century engraving depicting a moment of great battle, of great conflict in 1187. This is a battle at what's known as the Horns of Hattin, uh, it took place on the 4th of July. I always tell my students, forget about Independence Day in America. I'm not interested in that. This is 4th of July from now on, for my students, is Happy Hattin Day. <laughs> and it's the moment when the Muslim Sultan, who was ruling in the Near East at this point, a man called Saladin, defeated the forces of the Kingdom of Jerusalem and went on after that victory on the 2nd of October to retake the holy city of Jerusalem for the Muslims. And it's this city that we see laid out here. And I'll come back to talking about the, the importance and the significance of Jerusalem shortly. If we went forward again into the 13th century, then we could return to Antioch in northern, northern Syria in the year 1268. It's at that moment when the troops that we see depicted here in this beautiful uh, manuscript showing Mamluk warriors at training. So essentially Egyptian slave warriors from the 13th century under the rule of a truly ferocious and in many ways incredibly gifted Muslim commander, a man called Baibars. It's at this moment that they uh, took control of Antioch, closed its gates, and put everyone within the city to the sword, so we're told, in Muslim testimony. All of these moments are replete with violence. All of these tableaus, these, these images from the crusading past that I've alighted upon, suggest to us uh, a moment in history which is all about war. Now, I'm not going to be so much of a magician that I'm going to tell you the Crusades weren't anything, anything to do with violence. I'm not quite that gifted in terms of reinterpreting history. But I do want to suggest that there are other ways of thinking about this period, depending on what evidence we're keen to look at. For those of you who were here in the previous lecture, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not going to be either as skilled or as, as spend as much time looking at uh, this particular uh, piece of material culture. This is an ivory cover from a prayer book known as the Melisande Psalter, created in, we think, in around the 1130s. In the same way that Yanina Ramirez uh, interpreted this, this, her objects in looking at Anglo-Saxon history, we could look at the Melisande Psalter, as many historians have, and use it to try to evoke a sense of the world of the Crusader states, the, world's, the world in the Levant created by the Crusaders as being a world of interaction of different cultures. We look at these images here, we're actually seeing uh, a part of this uh, ivory cover depicting 
the, the acts of mercy, acts of goodness by a king. What's striking about this, these images is that the king is very much shown in Byzantine apparel. He's dressed as if he's a Greek emperor, even though this is created for Latin Christians, what we would think of as Catholic Christians living in the Levant. It's also remarkable that we see the geometric patterning surrounding this tableau image, which is very resonant uh, of Islamic culture. And that the whole object, the ivory covers, the text within, really speak of a, uh, a mixing of different cultures, different artistic tendencies that suggests a world of interaction, of fusion in the Crusader states. It's also possible to look at the Crusades in another light, to think about them as stimuli to trade and to commerce. We're very fortunate that uh, a text survives from the 1180s written by an Iberian pilgrim and traveler called Ibn Jubayr. And in 1183-84, he made a massive journey going to um, the holy sites of Islam through North Africa into the Arabian Peninsula, then into Iraq, and finally, on the homeward leg of his journey, he traveled from Damascus to this port. This is an aerial photograph of um, Acre, which is on the coastline uh, of now of modern-day Israel. It was the commercial center of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the 12th and 13th century. And Ibn Jubayr talks about the fact that this place is bustling with trade, traveling between the Muslim world and Western Europe. And Acre becomes so important because it's the, the break point, the connector between these two spheres of influence. So part of what I want to suggest is that we should question the true nature of crusading history. That we should recognize that it's not simply an era of total war and religious hatred. Certainly one of the most basic concepts that we have to overturn is to suggest that these were wars designed or predicated around the idea of conversion. Um, there, were, there are very few and very limited examples of, of forced conversion or even voluntary conversion in the context of the Crusades in either direction. Really what these conflicts was, were about, I would suggest, is sacred territory. And in particular, the focus on the holy city of Jerusalem itself. I showed an aerial photograph earlier on. I mean, the, the thing that's so significant about um, Jerusalem in this period is that it is regarded in many, many respects as the third city of Islam. Here we can see we're looking down from the Mount of Olives over the old city of Jerusalem. You can see the golden dome in front of you in the center of the image. That's the, the dome of the rock the site supposedly of Hamid's um, ascent on his night journey. Just to the side of that, we have the Aqsa Mosque, one of the most sacred mosques in the Muslim world. And this whole compound known to the Arabs and the Muslims as the Haram al-Sharif, or to the Jews as the Temple Mount. This is one of the great centers of devotional focus. But of course, Jerusalem is also, in many ways, the epicenter of the Christian world. This image shows uh, the entryway into the Holy Sepulchre, the church that's supposed to enclose the site of both of Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection. So the absolute focus point of the passion, the most sacred moments, the most significant devotional moments in the Christian faith. And it's the significance of Jerusalem that really makes it in the Christian Western world often regarded as the navel of the world. We can see that expressed in this map, the fact that Jerusalem is right at the heart, the epicenter of this map, of the Christian cosmos. So in many ways, this was a war based on the fact that Christians regarded Jerusalem as their possession, and Muslims, and of course Jews as well, regarded it as central to their own faiths as well. 
when we talk about the religious dimension of these wars, we also need to recognize that in the way in this, which this was holy war, it's not, as I said, about conversion. It's more about the spiritual rewards that are on offer to those who are participating. Participants on both sides seem to have believed quite ardently and authentically that participation in this war was going to ease their path into heaven. Now, the classic period for studying these wars in the Levant goes from the preaching of the First Crusade in 1095 to 1291, when the last crusader state fell. But in what I'm going to talk about um, today, I don't particularly want to focus on teasing out the details of um, the medieval story of the Crusades. Instead, what I want to focus most of my attention on is the way in which these Crusades have been remembered, the way in which they've been perceived and interpreted, interpreted and presented. And I, the most fundamental question I want to ask is why do they still appear to have some kind of resonance in the modern and contemporary world, even though some 720 years have passed since, in the Levant at least, they, they ended with Muslim victory. They ended with the eradication of what we call the Crusader states. In my own work at the moment, I'm becoming increasingly fascinated by this question of um, the way in which memory can shape reality. It's clear, of course, that the Crusades could have, in a real sense, what we might call an empirical impact upon history. You can't deny the fact that the First Crusade arrived at the end of the 11th century, it led to a series of conquests, and then the creation of what we've, we call the Crusader States. And the presence of these satellite settlements in the Levant undoubtedly changed the shape of medieval history. But in many ways, these events have an afterlife that is either as important, or perhaps even more important, than the empirical reality of what happened on the ground. In essence, it's not necessarily what happened, but what people believed or perceived to have happened that can create its own reality. So if you ask questions like, were the Crusades exemplars of human barbarism marked by extremes of violence, or were they actually glorious colonial enterprises? Your answer to those questions can allow you to present these wars in very different lights to have bearing upon how people act. Similarly, are they reflective of an inevitable clash of civilizations between Islam and the West? Or do they actually teach us a more positive story about the capacity for people of different ethnicities, different faiths, different backgrounds to interact uh, and potentially even coexist. If you get enough people to believe in one of these supposed truths, then that can actually affect how governments, societies, groups, whether they're extremist or otherwise, how they behave, how they act. So what I want to spend my time now doing is trying to trace the tendrils of memory and representation of the Crusades into the modern world and try to understand how they've been used to shape the world that's still around us. If we're interested in, first of all, identifying resonances in the 21st century, I'm afraid we have to, <laughs> to start with our old friend George Bush. So one of the most immediate resonances is the fact that five days after 9-11, um, George Bush walked onto the South Lawn of the White House and in rather stuttering and faltering language, declared that the coming war on terror would take a long time, and he described it as a crusade. And that's one of the things that led to these kind of uh, images in the press subsequently. It's striking that that's the last time that he used the C word, and uh, that politicians have been exceptionally careful in the West ever since. But that use of the word uh, was, of course, pounced upon um, by a number of commentators, 
and extremist groups to try to echo an idea or suggest an idea that these are ongoing conflicts that Bush, through his use of language, had reaffirmed the West's ongoing struggle in the Levant as a form of holy war. It's also true that uh, in the decade after that, that use of the crusade word by Bush, Al-Qaeda representatives, including uh, Ayman al-Zawahri, the right-hand man through the first decade of the 21st century of uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, made repeated use of references to the crusade, using the crusade as a touchstone for the work that al-Qaeda was carrying out. For example, the 2004 Madrid bombings were described subsequently by al-Qaeda groups as, in inverted commas, an attack on the Western Crusader Alliance. And as recently as 2010, Zawahri denounced the American uh, activity in Afghanistan as a crusade. So if we want to understand why these lingering resonances of crusades as an, as an idea are present, I think we need to, to try to trace this medieval phenomenon into the modern world. And I want to do that by starting with um, the West and then going on to the Muslim world. Of course, the Crusades did not in the West end entirely in 1291 with the fall of the Crusader states through the 14th to the 16th century and even, even further. We see, go, see ongoing wars promoted as Crusades in other theatres, uh, including wars against the Ottomans and some abortive attempts to try to launch another attack on the Holy Land. But in many ways through this period, we see the, the Crusades in the Levant being mythologized, being celebrated. It's only really when we get to the Reformation and the Enlightenment that we get a more cynical, condemnatory approach to these holy wars. Enlightenment thinkers like uh, Voltaire and Gibbon describing the Crusades as the absolute peak of an examination or an explanation of how religion can create barbarism um, as acts of savagery. Now the wheel doesn't really turn to view the crusading in a more positive light until we get to the Industrial Revolution and the 19th century. And in the early 19th century, we start to see a real sense of looking back to the medieval world as a period of, of a sort of golden age of romanticized activity, a pre-industrial age. And we see that kind of romanticism expressed in all kinds of forms, whether it's through art, history, and literature. One of the most um, significant proponents of this idea was actually um, the writer Walter Scott writing a series of novels in the first decades of the 19th century, including his famous work examining the Third Crusade or telling a story from within the Third Crusade called The Talisman, in which we see Richard the Lionheart, one of the protagonists of this crusade, presented in not entirely flattering light. He's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a thug, he's a bit of a brute. But the Sultan I talked about earlier on, Saladin, being presented really as you know, the wise, generous, skillful commander, almost the noble savage. And Scott, amongst a group of authors and artists who are starting to evoke a kind of sense of romantic re-engagement with the Crusades as something that is not just an act of barbarism, but something perhaps that can be celebrated. Now, I think this has quite significant consequences for the way in which the modern world starts to think about the medieval world and starts to see the medieval world somehow as a mirror to its own present. And we can see this start to be expressed in what for its time is serious academic work. Perhaps the most famous exemplar of this is the, the multi-volume history of the Crusades 
written by a very influential French historian called François Michaud. And this artist, Gustave Doré, I showed you one of his uh, images earlier on from Hattin. This is another uh, really evocative moment from the history of the Crusades. It's just before the Crusaders break into Antioch on the 3rd of June. This is the moment I talked about right at the start of the lecture. We're seeing the first crusader going up the ladder, and we actually know from eyewitness testimony that they really were terrified about what they were going to see when they got to the top, where they're going to be killed. It's one of the reasons why the guy looking up, who's the crusade leader Beaumont, rather politely said, I don't think I'll be the first man up the ladder. Why doesn't someone else go up, just to make sure that we're going to be okay? But Michaud uh, created this first three-volume and then eventually seven-volume history of the Crusades, which proved to be incredibly influential in terms of shaping, especially, French attitudes towards crusading. And what he emphasized more than anything else was that the Crusades were, were an exemplar of colonialism, and that in many ways this was a very positive medieval exemplar, a medieval mirror to what France was going through and planning as an imperial power in the 19th century and beyond. Michaud applauded the glory earned by the Crusaders and noted, this is the, the really key phrase that he uses, that their objective was the conquest and the civilization of Asia. Francois Michaud's work helped to create a, a really powerful drive of popularist uh, engagement, re-engagement with crusading history. And that was also evoked in the creation of what's known as the Salle des Croissades, a series of rooms in Versailles, which contained massive monumental um, artworks evoking the period uh, of the Crusades in the Levant, and also containing coats of arms that if you could claim to have descendants linked to the Crusades, then you could get your coats of arms put up in this room. It's, I won't go into detail on this, I can come into this in questions if necessary. Actually, it turned out a man called Courtois was making a, a very tidy sum on the side by giving you forged lineage so you could get your coat of arms up on here. And no one detected the forgeries until the 1950s, so he obviously did a pretty good job. And this is one of, this is one of the uh, paintings from these chambers. They're quite difficult to get into, but if you can manage to uh, beg, borrow, commit your way into there one way or another, it's worth going to these rooms just to get a sense of how much they actually celebrate blatantly the kind of uh, romanticized image of the Crusades that was prevalent in the 19th century. This is an image showing the fall of Acre in 1291. So one of the first really significant impacts is this idea of crusading as proto-colonialism, as crusading as the exemplar of what Western imperial powers might now be doing in the 19th century. Another really significant feature is the idea of using the Crusades to affirm and perhaps even create an idea of national identity. So we see a whole across the whole spectrum of Western Europe, governments and groups and, and even popular risings amongst broader ranges of the population supporting an idea that heroes from the Crusades should be identified with a particular country. They should be used to evoke the national identity of that country. This is an equestrian statue of Godfrey of Bouillon from Belgium. Uh, although Belgium didn't even exist at this moment for uh, when the First Crusade took place at the end of the 11th century. Now in the 19th century, when this was erected in 1848, now we see Godfrey uh, evoked as a Belgian national hero. And of course, we're guilty of this ourselves. Um, this is the very similar equine statue of Richard the Lionheart, now outside the Palace of Westminster. Uh, although it's notable that this was actually a, a 
statue that had to be paid for by public subscription. It wasn't really something that the government was necessarily backing. Uh, it was more something out of popular demand. So we've got colonialism and we've got national identities, very powerful forces being mobilized by crusading memory. By the end of the century, we see almost crusading fever taking, taking hold of certain national figures. Um, and one of the ways in which this expresses itself is a, a really strong romantic or romanticized, romantic's perhaps a bit too, too going too far, uh, romanticized engagement with Saladin as a figure. The most infamous example of this is the German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, who in 1898 decided he wanted to make a, a special journey to the Holy Land and decked himself out in, in sort of medieval garb. This is a photograph showing him uh, arriving at Jerusalem. Uh, but he was particularly fascinated by the cult of Saladin by this point. And after visiting Jerusalem, they made a journey to Damascus and actually uh, presented uh, a, a wreath on the Ayyubids, Sultan's rather dilapidated tomb, and tried to evoke that sense of um, Saladin's greatness by then carrying out work and giving monies to ensure that that tomb could be um, restored to its former glory. By the time of the First World War, and I think if, we're going to, if you're, going to, you're probably going to be aware of the fact that we're going to be heading into First World War mania from uh, 2014 onwards, get ready for four years of conference after conference. But one of the things that is absolutely fascinating about this period is it is the moment of the reshaping of the Middle East. And some of the research that I'm actually involved in myself at the Center for the Study of Islam in the West is, is about how this moment uh, impacts upon the relationship between the Muslim world and the Western world. Uh, but this is a moment which uh, has real significance for the way in which the Crusades then continue to be remembered, especially in uh, the Muslim world. Most famously, it's the moment in 1917 when the British general Edmund Allenby arrived in Jerusalem. And we see Allenby's entry into the Holy City, uh, shown here in this photograph. Now famously, Allenby is supposed to have been really averse to the idea of triumphalistic rhetoric surrounding the Crusades. He's supposed to have ordered his troops not to make any reference to the medieval past or to former wars or former glories. And in, in stark contrast to Kaiser Wilhelm, he did not get himself decked up in medieval regalia. He made a pretty peaceful entry. But that didn't stop uh, the press back in Western Europe and back in England uh, playing around with crusading imagery. Punch, the publication, presented this image of Richard the Lionheart looking down on the holy city of Jerusalem with the inscription, The Last Crusade. And the underlying uh, little notes you probably can't see today uh, sorry, all at last my dreams come true. And the rumor then passed around in the press that Allenby himself had proclaimed, today the wars of the Crusades are ended. A statement which is almost 100% almost apocryphal, uh, but as we'll see, had significant consequences in terms of the way Islam viewed uh, the modern reactions to the Crusades. In order to go from the Western world to re-examine Islam's engagement with the crusading past. I want to just focus briefly on this word, the word crusade. What's fascinating is in the, in the course of the 20th century and into the 21st, the word has undoubtedly been divorced from its historical uh, connections in many ways. It's been neutralized. For us, it definitely does not immediately mean a holy war. 
Uh, one of the games I play um, pretty much every year when I'm thinking about this in terms of my own teaching at university is to go onto Google, type in the word crusade, and see what comes up under news. So I did this for you this week. So what did we get last week? We got Nick Clegg's free schools crusade. We got a crusade against payday loans, a crusade against cancer, and my favorite for 2013, a mustache crusade. <laughs> Which turns out it's, a, it's an action being taken, taking place in Boston next month. So you grow a crusade, to, uh, grow, sorry, grow a mustache. <laughs> That's what you call a Freudian slip. You grow a moustache to show people that you're de devoted to the idea of cutting down on male health issues. I don't really understand how that's going to work, but that's what's happening in Boston next month. So for us in the West, the word crusade, although it still has some historical resonance, can also be deployed in many different settings. In Islam, however, the, word, or the words used to describe these wars that was first coined in the 19th century and onwards it's far more precise. It's al-hurub al-salabiyya, or the cross wars, quite literally. And in Arabic, um, that phraseology has no, there's no potential for that to be used or deployed in a non-violent or non-religious setting. The cross wars means only one thing in Arabic. And so the use of the words, uh, the use of the terminology shows the kind of um, divergence of opinion and usage in the way in which we conceptualize these wars. The same thing you could argue is, um, is happening and is true when we look at the word jihad, which literally means struggle, but in Western Europe, in popular culture, it's just deemed to mean only one thing, Islamic holy war. So to try to understand Islam's re-engagement with the Crusades, I want to spend some time trying to identify a process that I've called crusade parallelism the process by which the Muslim world starts itself to think about the Crusades as a mirror and as a period that can be utilized um, and deployed in order to produce propaganda. The first faltering steps in this take place right at the end of the 19th century and may in part have been inspired by the kind of Western triumphalism and talk of colonialism that we've already seen taking place in places like France and England. We also see a developing interest and a, and a much more increasing interest in the cult of Saladin. Before this point, the real focus within the Muslim world had actually been on other Muslim leaders. Nur al-Din, the predecessor, predecessor to Saladin, and Baibars, the Mamluk commander that I talked about earlier in the lecture. But the real change came, and the real focus on crusading came after World War II, and with the UN-mandated creation of Israel. And some of this, this connection is tied to the fact that Israel's borders could quite closely be paralleled with the borders of the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the medieval period. A part of what I think makes the Crusades such a fertile area for manipulation in the 20th century, um, especially in some of the groups I'm going to talk about within Islam in a moment, is that it's a period that has enough resonance, there's enough spark of recognition when you use this term and you, and you draw out this medieval past into the modern world, that it can be useful. It can be used to present a didactic message about Western imperialism and eventual Muslim victory against that imperialism. But there's not enough memory of these events that it's going to make it you know, difficult to manipulate. So we know people 
can remember that these wars took place, but they don't remember the specific details. And that makes it a very malleable period. It's not familiar enough that you're going to get caught out if you're starting to brush the uncomfortable details to the side. And that, that sheer malleability of this period is one of the things that's made crusading history so attractive to two diametrically opposed groups or strands of thought within Islam. And I just want to explore those briefly now. So the first are Arab nationalists. Within this strand of thought, the Crusades are essentially presented um, not as wars of religion, but as uh, foreign actions of foreign imperialism. And in strong terms, the propaganda value of focusing on the Crusades is also connected to a re-evocation of the cult of Saladin. Not now for someone like Kaiser Wilhelm II, but for Arab nationalist leaders. I've drawn a couple of examples in this, this first pairing of images. So on the one side, we have Gamal Abdel Nasser. Sorry, the, some of the images are getting cut off. So you're slightly losing the, the small image of the poster underneath uh, Nasser. So Nasser was an Egyptian leader in the middle part of the 20th century. He very much drew upon the fact that Saladin's empire had been created in Egypt, had begun in Egypt and then grew out from there into Syria and styled himself as a second Saladin, likening himself to this former Muslim leader who had enjoyed success in the 12th century. He claimed that Israel's creation was, quote, a substitute for the Crusades. And we see that, that desire to draw parallels, even expressed in popular culture. So in 1963, when the film for the poster, which you just wrote at the bottom, was first created, this is the highest budget um, Arab film created up until this point. And it's quite striking that the man chosen to play Saladin in that film bore a remarkable likeness to Gamal Abdel Nasser. I don't think that's any accident. Another leader, like um, Hafez Assad, the father of the current Syrian leader, Bashar al-Assad, was also focused upon Saladin and the representation of the Crusades. Assad styled himself as the Saladin of the 20th century. And he had this equestrian statue uh, constructed and then erected in 1992. And we should see, this is Saladin astride his horse just after the Battle of Hattin. And you know, we should see immediate parallels here between, the, say, the statue of Richard the Lionheart, which still, is still standing in London, and this, which is outside the citadel of Damascus. Perhaps the most famous exponent of this idea of parallelism was, yeah, this is, this is Saddam Hussein with his Dome with the Rock hat. Is Saddam Hussein, uh, the former re leader of Iraq. So Saddam seems to have been absolutely obsessed with these parallels. And we can trace it in all kinds of different directions. So we see um, postage stamps, for example, which showed Saddam Hussein's head right next to that of Saladin. The same is true on banknotes. He even sponsored the creation of a children's book, which was then used as a textbook at schools that talked about the two life stories of Saladin. Uh, Saladin in the medieval past and the new Saladin, the second Saladin, which was supposedly Saddam Hussein himself. One of the ways he forged that connection is that Saladin's birthplace was Tikrit, and that's where Saddam Hussein himself was, was born. But this is where, one of those moments where we see that brushing away of the untidy detail. Because the striking thing about um, Saladin was that he was not actually an Arab. He was a Kurd. And if you know anything about Saddam Hussein's record on dealing with the Kurds, then you'll not be surprised by the fact that he kept that detail out of his press releases. 
Also, just in terms of imagery, just note how much focus there is in terms of the sort of propaganda value of presenting Saddam Hussein in this light, where he's wearing this, this Dome of the Rock hat. Just in case you were wondering about the Dome of the Rock, I decided I'd put another image in so you can see. This is, this is you know, a really physical representation of the fact that it's not just about using the Crusades as a, as a resonance touchstone, but also to say, where is this going? It's going to go eventually to the reconquest of Jerusalem. So on the one hand, we have Arab nationalists, people who basically view the future of Islam as, as a political activity. But on the other, we have their diametrically opposed groups, Islamist groups, in many ways radical Islamist groups, who actually uh, view the future of Islam in a theocratic sense. And they re represent the Crusades in a very different way. Now we have them very much emphasized as wars of religion. Faith is pumped back into the rhetoric surrounding uh, the Crusades in this context. And in Islamist propaganda, we see the Crusades presented as aggressive religious wars waged against the Muslim world, the only response to which is supposedly a violent physical jihad or struggle. Now, one of the most famous and influential Islamist ideologues was this man, Said Qutb, uh, who was executed for treason in Egypt in 1966 under Nasser's rule. Qutb famously described Western imperialism as quote, a mask for the crusading spirit, stating that the crusader spirit runs in the blood of all Westerners. He also declared that there was an international, uh, an international crusaderism uh, was behind all of the West's Levantine interventions. And perhaps most strikingly, he also cited Allenby's supposed statement about the medieval crusades as proof of that ongoing uh, current of Western involvement in crusades. And it's Qutub's ideology that we've seen expressed in the last 20, in the last decade, 10 to 20 years, in the hands of groups like Al-Qaeda and now potentially in the background of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So far I've talked about the manipulation of the Crusades in ways that we might regard as very negative, uh, especially in, in some of the kind of language that I'm using to describe uh, manipulation in the hands of Islamists, perhaps even in Arab nationalists, and when we go back to the 19th century, evoking the kind of supposedly glorious colonial activities of Western powers. I would argue, however, that even when you're trying to reinterpret the Crusades in a positive light, then there is serious danger. Even if you're trying to present what you think is a more balanced, positivistic approach to this period, then you have to be extremely cautious. And, and an exemplar of this, uh, comes in the 2005 film, Kingdom of Heaven, um, directed by Ridley Scott. So this is the point where I have to, I have to fess up. Okay? This is my moment of honesty. So I spent six months working as a historical consultant on this film. And it was not pleasant. <laughs> not a nice experience. Um, what's so fascinating about this, it, it, obviously it comes in the wake of 9-11. And uh, what is at the heart of this film is an attempt to present the world of the Crusades in the, in the 12th century. It surrounds basically the Battle of uh, Hattin and uh, the fall of Jerusalem that I described at the start of the lecture. The attempt really is to present anyone who's of significance, anyone that you're supposed to view as a positive character. All of those figures really don't believe in religion. They are almost proto-atheists. And what we're supposed to glean in many ways from the, the characters that we see who are of positive characters, is that they show us that Christians and Muslims can live side by side, 
that there's real potential for friendship, for equanimity, um, and that especially in, in the presentation of Saladin, who's here played by uh, the actor Ghassan Massoud, what we see is a man who's wise, who's gifted, it's a, in a sort of evocation almost of the 19th century noble savage image of Saladin that we saw in the work of someone like Walter Scott. And I think undoubtedly what Ridley Scott wanted to do was take the sting out of crusading history, but also use it as a positive mirror to the past. The idea that we think this is all about war, but actually, no, it's about two peoples that can interact peacefully. It's a very cozy image. Unfortunately, it's not, it, it's not reflective of reality. Even though it's a more pleasant and more palatable piece of propaganda, it's still propaganda. And we can see this in a, in a couple of moments. One is it actually uh, really telling in the film where we see Saladin making a deal to negotiate the surrender of Jerusalem. And the man played, called Balian of Iblin, played by Orlando Bloom, is, is trying to cut a deal for the Holy City's surrender. And in, in the version in the film, we see Saladin basically say, I, I will let all the women and children go, all the men will go, uh, I'll let them go free, and Balian of Iblin's absolutely astounded. How can you do this? He said, the crusaders came here and uh, cut everyone down. It was violent and bloody, and Saladin, Ghassan Masood playing Saladin, just says, I am not those men. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a different type of human being. The reality is a bit more complicated. Of course, it's true that Saladin didn't butcher the population of Jerusalem, but he did make them pay for their freedom, those who could pay. And we know, and this, we know this from Arabic testimony, from Muslim testimony, that some 7,000 men and 8,000 women remained unransomed and were taken into slavery. That little bit of uncomfortable detail is just, again, brushed to the side to give a slightly airbrushed vision of Saladin. Perhaps the even more telling moment comes a little bit later, about five minutes later in the film, where we see Saladin walking through Jerusalem, walking through a slightly disheveled room, and there's a cross on the floor. Ghassan Masood, playing Saladin, bends down, picks up this cross, and just puts it on the table. Now, this wasn't in the script. The script was pretty awful, I have to tell you. And when I, when I read the script, I actually thought to myself, oh, they won't film half of this. You know, anyone can see this is pretty awful. Uh, but actually, they did film all of it, pretty much word for word. <laughs> but that moment with the cross wasn't there. And after the film came out, I had a very surreal experience of having Ridley Scott call me on the phone for an hour and a half trying to persuade me to put my backing behind the film, to sort of say, yeah, this is, this is historically really accurate. And we went back and forth, back and forth. And in the end, he said, but how can you not like this film? What about that moment? when Ghassan bent down to pick up the cross. It's, it, you know, it's such a powerful message about the integration of these two faiths. And he, I said, so where did that come from? He said, oh, well, you know, Ghassan just did it off the cuff. He was just walking through the room and he bent down and picked it up. And Ridley Scott said, he went up to Ghassan afterwards and said, why did you do that? And he looked him in the eye and just said, because that's what Saladin would have done. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely image, but unfortunately, Again, it's entirely misrepresentative. Again, Arabic Muslim testimony tells us that the very first thing that Saladin did when he got into Jerusalem was to order the cross that had been on top of the Dome of the Rock, ordered it to be ripped down and broken into pieces. So this idea that we can alter the past by presenting a rosier, um, more positivistic image of Saladin, even that, I think, is problematic. So where does this take us? I think, of course, it's true that humankind 
has always shown a proclivity for the deliberate misrepresentation of history. But I would suggest that the dangers attendant upon crusader parallelism, this, this process that I've alluded to, uh, are potentially particularly intense. Whether it's in the hands of Western imperial powers or Arab nationalists or Islamists, and I think that if unchallenged, this manipulation of the past can create its own potentially deadly reality. This idea that if enough people believe this propaganda, then it can, in a real sense, affect the world around us. My task, as I see it, and the task of other medieval historians, is, I think, to expose the role of caricature, distortion, and fabrication in these representations, and to show that they do not reflect what I regard as the medieval realities of this period of reciprocal violence, diplomacy and trade, enmity and alliance, all of these factors in, and the interplay that's at the heart of what I think is the reality of crusading history. In my opinion, we need to place the crusades in their proper medieval context and thus recognize that in many ways they were normative, reflective of the same fractious mixture of conflict and coexistence that we might see playing out between Christians back in Western Europe or even between Muslims in the Levant. And indeed, the same mixture of conflict and coexistence that's been a constant theme of human history uh, between polities, peoples, faiths, and culture over the millennia. So the image of the crusading world that I want to leave you with and the image of the war for the Holy Land that I want to evoke is neither apocalyptic nor is it utopian, but rather nuanced, tempered, and above all, human. Thank you. That was Tom Asbridge speaking at last year's History Weekend Festival. The festival is returning to Malmesbury this October with more speakers, more venues and more days than last year's event. If you'd like to find out more or purchase tickets, please head to historyweekend.com. And if you can't wait until October for your history fix, then why not check out the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale. Inside, we explore Thomas Cromwell's fractious relationship with Henry VIII. We reveal some of Britain's audacious plans to repel a Nazi invasion. And we chart the descent of ancient Rome into a century of chaos and civil war. If you like the sound of any of that, then why not get hold of a copy at all good news agents or digitally? This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do please get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in the future. And you can also reach us on both Twitter and Facebook where we are at History Extra. And do make sure to check out our website, historyextra.com, for the latest history news, quizzes, galleries, articles and hundreds of episodes of this podcast that go back to 2007. Next week, we're going to be joined by Janice Hadlow to talk about King George III. 
do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Malmesbury and produced by Jack Fletcher.